if children could enter adulthood with confidence in their own perspectives and really strong skills in reasoning through the way they saw the world, problems they faced, and an ability to examine their own assumptions and look at alternative points of view, that that really, I don't know that there's a stronger tool you can give young people as a way to take control over their lives. Welcome to Think Bigger, Think Better, where we explore how you can apply insights from visionary leaders and the most provocative philosophers and scientists of our time to make your life and our world a better place. Here's your host, author and speaker, Paul Gibbons. Welcome back, everybody, to episode four of Think Bigger, Think Better. In a moment, with our guest Jana Moore-Lone, we're going to talk about whether philosophy can or should be taught to children. But before that, let me say where we're going with the show. Upcoming guests include Steven Pinker from Harvard and the former editor of The Economist magazine, Anthony Gottlieb. Those will air sometime in the spring. I'm also planning an episode or two on blockchain and Bitcoin. Is Bitcoin a bubble? Or is it a fundamental change to the way we see money? We've got, coming up, the physician who runs the Celiac Disease Center at Columbia University to talk about gluten. And finally, I'm trying to put together a series on fake news. We're going to start that next week with Paul Levinson, who's one of today's authorities. So I hope you'll keep coming, and I hope you'll tell your friends. If you'd like to recommend a topic or an individual for a podcast, let me know in the comments or email me. I'd love feedback on the show. Is it too long? Is it too short? What do you think of the intros? And I'd love more ratings on iTunes. And as you know, I'm giving away dozens of books to listeners who rate the show on iTunes. Find out how to do that at the end of the show. I received a very kind remark from a Denver listener. She said, like you, I prefer to read, but this might be a new medium for me. It's very well done, very informative, and I now want to read Jeremy's books. I look forward to listening to other podcasts. So thank you. Thanks for that feedback. So on to today's show. What are some of the huge questions in life? Well, some of them are ethical. What's the right thing to do? Is maximizing happiness a sound principle? What about the ethics of violence? When is war justified? When is killing someone justified? Why is killing animals justified? We have the domain of knowledge or epistemology. What can we know? How do we know what we know? How sure can we be about what we know? We have the domain of political philosophy. How do we govern ourselves? What's justice? Is inequality bad? What kind of democracy works best? And we have metaphysical questions about the nature of the universe. Is the universe infinite? Are there many universes? Does God exist? What is real? How do we know electrons and quarks are real? How do we know that we exist? So those are the questions that philosophy asks. And they're cool questions, the big, big, big questions in life. But while it never produces definitive answers, philosophy is the process of thinking about and engaging with the questions. And that's what makes philosophy what it is, what makes it not science, and what makes it not religion, is the fact that it's the way you think about the questions 
that's important and not necessarily getting to definitive answers. In fact, the oldest questions in philosophy still don't have any definitive answers at all. It's the discussion of these questions that really provides the value. So then there's a question, do you have to be a grown-up to study these questions? Can kids think about them? Do kids think about them? Should kids think about them? So today's topic is teaching philosophy to children. We have Jenna Moore alone of the Center for Philosophy for Children. Strangely, I bumped into Jana on Twitter, which isn't unusual. What is unusual is that we went to grade school together. Uh, <clears throat> um, that was something like 50 years ago. And uh, Jana has done something that uh, I've always wanted to do, which is write a philosophy book for children. So she's the founder of the University of Washington Center for Philosophy for Children. The center brings in philosophers and students trained in philosophy into the K-2 through 12 public school classrooms to facilitate philosophical discussion. Jan is the author of The Philosophical Child, which explores ways that parents and other adults can stimulate philosophical conversations about children's questions. Jana, welcome to Think Bigger, Think Better. So Jana, what moved you, of all things, to get into philosophy for children? Well, I'm often asked that question. And it really started for me. So before I did graduate work in philosophy, I was a practicing lawyer and I did a lot of work with children and families. And I began to think about ways in which children might be empowered to take control of the circumstances of their own lives, because in so many of the situations in which I was involved, children were relatively powerless and the law could come in and change the circumstances to help them, move them into foster care, etc. But the children themselves weren't really being given tools, at least not by the law, that's not really what the law does, to kind of take move forward in their own lives in healthy ways. So I started thinking about that around the same time that I decided that I was going to pursue the PhD in philosophy. I'd had my first child and I took some time off with him and decided to go ahead and, and work on start working on the dissertation. And around that same time, I read a book by a former professor of mine, Gareth Matthews, who wrote about sort of children's philosophical inclinations. And that was really quite revelatory for me. And I started thinking about that. And then, of course, my, I had a second child. And then as I was finishing the dissertation, my oldest son was then around four. And of course, four-year-olds ask lots of questions. And he was asking questions like, what is fairness? Or can you be happy and sad at the same time? Or are numbers real? And I recognized that these questions were genuinely philosophical questions. And so I began thinking about whether thinking about those questions might help children to be able to start to trust their own views, think more clearly. Because one of the things I knew about myself is when I was a young child, I thought a lot about these kinds of questions. And I had a lot of support for reflecting and talking about big, serious questions. And that support and the fact that some of the adults, at least around me, really listened to what I had to say, gave me confidence that in my own views and my ability to articulate those views and sort of my work at reasoning through them. And I thought, 
if children could enter adulthood with confidence in their own perspectives and really strong skills in reasoning through the way they saw the world, problems they faced, and an ability to examine their own assumptions and look at alternative points of view, that that really, I don't know that there's a stronger tool you can give young people as a way to take control over their lives. So I started thinking about that and sort of having these conversations with my own son. And then I asked his kindergarten teacher, it was kindergarten, might've been preschool, if I could come into the classroom and have a conversation with the class of children. And she was quite open to that. And so there were about 10 or 12 five-year-olds, I think it was, in the class. And I came in and I was quite nervous. I'd never taught children before. I taught undergraduates, but not children. But I brought a book that Will and I had really enjoyed, which is one of the Frog and Toad books by Arnold Lobel, which are very philosophically suggestive, and read them a story about bravery. And we ended up having, for about 20 minutes, this wonderful discussion about whether you can be brave if you're afraid and the relationship between bravery and fear with the children saying things like, well, you know, bravery is when you're scared to do something and you do it anyway. And so that led us to talk about whether you can be brave if you're not afraid, etc. And that was sort of the first step, I guess, on my path to doing this work, because I could see, A, that the children were really enthusiastic about engaging in this conversation, and B, that they really had lots Lots of interesting things to say and were willing to dive into the conversation without much trepidation, or at least that's how it seemed. That's an incredible story. So many things came together, your personal life and your professional life. And I guess the theme that runs throughout is empowering children to have great and better lives through giving them skills to reflect and self-confidence, their own thinking and perspective. So that, that sounds fabulous. That's quite a journey. So I guess as if I take a contrary, a sort of a practical, you know, the practical is an overused word. Let me take a perspective. Why does philosophy matter as a subject and why isn't it taught more often? Well, I think it matters as a subject because I think it's something we actually do all the time. And it's part of being a human being is to think about big questions like, is this the right thing for me to do? Or why am I here? Or what does friendship really involve, et cetera? And I think it's unfortunate that we tend to think of philosophy as this academic subject that is taught only in colleges and universities, as opposed to something that's really part of being a human being. So I think that there are several reasons why philosophy itself has kind of both become this academic subject and as a result, not generally been something to which most people are introduced outside of university. Um, and I think part of that is that the discipline itself has become increasingly specialized and narrow, at least in some places. There are people within the discipline who are working to try and change that. But in general, I would say the discipline has become much more narrow and specialized, certainly, than it was in, say, the time of the ancient Greeks. And so because of that, you know, you might walk into a talk given by a philosopher in an academic setting and really have no idea what he or she is saying, because there's so much technical jargon being used and the conversations tend often, not always, but often 
to focus on very narrow subjects. And for most people who aren't part of that professional discipline, that's not very interesting. And I think the, the second and maybe related reason is that, you know, our culture tends to be a very practical can do focus on doing culture and the idea of spending a lot of time wondering and reflecting about life in general is not something that many people think of as an important way to spend your time and one of the things i think is really important about doing this work with children is that i do think it's an important way to spend your time i think keeping alive the sort of wondering mind that you have that most of us have in childhood is really a powerful way to enrich your life and to give children the message that wondering and reflecting about big questions is a valuable way to spend time, I think is really a service to them. Very cool. You know, some of the people that we think of as being some of the greatest achievers, Bill Gates used to have a thing called Think Week, Mm -hmm. where he used to take some time off for a week and just read and reflect and walk in the woods. And as someone even more of a business icon, Jack Welch, chief executive of General Electric, used to have one hour a day where he absolutely would spend it reflecting and thinking about what he was doing and was he delivering what he said he was going to be doing and some of the bigger questions. So that's certainly a man that was driven by quarterly results, but made time for reflection and to think about bigger questions. So it's not alien. It's certainly not alien and successful people that they spend some time reflecting on bigger questions. Absolutely right. It's that time of year, too, when I think everybody would benefit from, uh, I certainly, it's kind of an artificial divide, the 25th of December or the 1st of January, but I spend some time thinking about the big questions in life about this time of year, whether I'm doing what I want to be doing and whether I'm serving the people I need to serve and all of that. You know, we do a monthly workshop for teachers in which we engage in philosophical inquiry together. There's usually 20 or 25 of us. And and often, you know, people will tell me, I, I so look forward to this. It's so important to me to have this time to think about these questions with other people because it's not something I ever get to do otherwise. So I think it isn't that people don't want to do it. I think it's just that for some, for, for I guess for many reasons in m- many people's lives, it's hard to find a space for that. Am I on your mailing list? Because if I'm not, I should be, because I'd certainly, yes. it's not, it's not put, certainly not out of the question that I'd come to Seattle. Yeah. <laughs> for listeners, Jan is in Seattle, which is one of my favorite cities in the world. So that's cool. So resources, what are some books for teens or even younger? You know, well, I mean, you're, the way you're describing it, any book, can introduce any book could be read in such a way as it introduces philosophical questions, but some perhaps are more able than others. So what are some resources or books for teens or, or younger kids that Yeah. So for, for teens, I would say, I mean, there, 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 there's very different kinds of things, right? So with younger kids, I'll start with younger kids. With younger kids, we don't really, you know, introduce philosophical questions in a sort of direct way. We'll bring in a story like, as I mentioned, the frog and toad stories. There, and there are lots of examples on our website of picture books and other chapter books for younger students that we think are particularly philosophically interesting, along with some of the questions they might raise. But but really, we always look to the children for what questions the story makes them wonder about. And some stories lead you to wonder perhaps more directly than others. But I, as you say, I think 
most texts, if they're well done, raise some big questions. For older students, for say teenagers, there are two books that I often recommend. One is Sophie's World by Justine Gardner, who's a Norwegian writer. And that's a wonderful kind of mystery story about a young girl that involves her stumbling into the history of philosophy. And it's really, really well done. And students to whom I've recommended over the years really like it. Um, He's actually written recently, too, a a book that's for younger kids, more of a picture book called Questions Asked, which is just a lovely book with illustrations that asks questions just just as a series of questions like, can anyone know what I think? Or is it possible to be afraid without knowing what you're afraid of, etc. So that's, that's just a lovely new, newer book. And then another book that I re- often recommend both to teenagers and sometimes to undergraduate students who are not philosophy students, but who are interested in working in classrooms with kids and doing philosophy is Thomas Nagel's book, What Does It All Mean?, which is a really nice short, I mean, I don't even think it's 100 pages, very accessible introduction to some of the big philosophical questions, focusing very much on the questions themselves and not really on the history of what professional philosophers have had to say about those questions. So that's a really nice resource. Okay, well, that's super helpful. You spoke to me in our earlier exchange about the Velveteen Rabbit story. That's one that was quite Uh touching and moving to me. Maybe tell us a little bit about the Velveteen Rabbit. Sure. And that is also on our website. So listeners could can look at that as well. But um, the, so the Velveteen Rabbit, which many parents will know, is a story about a stuffed rabbit who is trying to decide at the beginning of the story if he's real or not. And one of the other toys in the nursery tells the stuffed rabbit that he will become real when he is loved. And the boy who to whom the stuffed rabbit belongs is not that interested in the stuffed rabbit, but then he gets very sick and the stuffed rabbit becomes kind of his beloved comfort companion. And as a result, the stuffed rabbit realizes at some point that because he is now loved, he's become real. But then he runs into, they're outside one day and he, as I recall, and he runs into a group of rabbits that can move on their own and are speaking to each other and who are eating on their own, etc. And he realizes because they, well, they make fun of him and say, you're not real. You're just a stuffed bunny that he's not real in the way they are. And so it really, it raises these, these really nice questions about, can think, what does it mean to be real, of course? And then are some things more real than others? It sort of t- take off in some ways on Plato's idea of various levels of reality, right? And the forms and all of that. And it really, it's a charming story and raises very nicely for children this big question about what being real is. And for children, I mean, especially the, in the context of this story, often children do have toys or stuffed animals or dolls to which they are very attached and which are companions for them. And so are they real? Well, they're there, right? And the relationship that the child has with the object is a real relationship, at least from the child's point of view. So is that object real? 
maybe it's real in a different way than the child is real and what does that mean and and so on. Uh, huge metaphysical questions and uh, and ones that are twenty five well at least twenty five hundred years old twenty five hundred years old or, or or maybe older and and there's another lovely story that I picked up from our conversation which is it's the story about the brain and vat I mean listeners will be familiar with the Matrix where adults are persuaded that they're living in a different reality than they're living in which of course raises the question is what is reality but they're wired up to a supercomputer that's draining the electricity from their bodies and they're led to believe by electrical stimulation in their brain that they're living in a world that looks like the world that we live in now except it's a it's a neurological construction if you want and uh you had an experience of a of a young girl i think she was in fifth grade experimenting with those kind of thought problems if you will i i love yeah. that example I mean, of course, The Matrix is based on Plato's allegory of the cave and this idea that we might not, reality might not be what it, what we think it is, right? The relationship between appearance and reality, et cetera. And what can we know about the world? And, and really in this class, as I recall, we were focusing more on sort of a Descartes kind of look at knowledge in which the students were playing with the idea of, could we be in a dream right now? And that led us to, well, how do we know we're not? Well, what do we know? I mean, if we could be in a dream, then all the things we think are real, maybe they aren't real, et cetera, et cetera. So what can we be sure to know? What I mean, what are we sure of? What do we know we know? And students tested various things and other students would say, well, you know, you could be wrong about that because you could be in a dream or you could be in the matrix and you could be hooked up to, because at that point, the matrix was very popular and most of the fifth graders knew that had seen that film. And then one young girl said, well, I know that I am thinking because these are thoughts I'm having. So even if I am hooked up to something and I don't have the body I think I have, and I'm not who I think I am, and I don't have the family I think I do, I know that I'm thinking. So I can be sure of that. And of course, that's Descartes' argument, right? I think, therefore, I am. And it was just breathtaking to watch unfold. Although I will say it is, it is not that, it is, it is way less infrequent than you might think that children really recreate the history of philosophy and come up with the same kinds of arguments in different ways, of course, and using different conceptual apparatus than that the great philosophers constructed. And of course, if, if people know uh, one philosophical expression, the one that they know is, I think, therefore I am, Kogito Ergo Sum, they know that. So that's interesting that she yeah. derived it from first principles, as it were, at the age of yep. 10 or 11. I can't recall from the story. So. Yeah, right. 10 or 11. And that's spectacular. And I think a lot of parents, I'm touched by that as a parent, the fact mm -hmm. that children have access to the kind of questions and the kind of reasoning that, you know, in our society, we don't teach philosophy You'd be very lucky to get it in high school. Right. And then once you're in college, you're driven to the major that you've chosen. And for good and bad reasons, people don't choose philosophy as often. And it's, you know, if you're lucky, you get one semester of it as an elective. And of course, you know, I mean, while I, of course, love philosophy and studied it for years and continue to study it, I also think that there's a distinction between studying philosophy and just thinking philosophically. And with at least young children, I'm not necessarily hoping that they'll grow up and become philosophers or major in philosophy in college. But I am really hoping that they continue to think about these big questions, that they are develop greater confidence and skill in tackling difficult, big 
topics. And it, because often children will say things like, you know, we think, I think about these things a lot, but adults don't take us seriously. They don't really listen to children. And so one of the things that I'm really interested in is helping parents and grandparents and adults in general really look at children differently than I think our culture tends to, to understand that they are capable of philosophical thinking, and that, in fact, they have a lot to contribute to the way we think about some of the big questions in life. I guess you were moved initially anyway with concerns, very touching personal concerns about children and children's empowerment and enabling children. But how would this sort of education help the world? Like in a bigger picture, like if all children, all young adults were introduced to this sort of practice, and and you've made a great distinction between studying philosophy and thinking philosophically, but if they were all introduced to the practice of thinking philosophically, and maybe a little bit of philosophy, maybe a little bit of the great philosophers, well, Mm -hmm. how how would the world be different? Well, I think that I guess there's several kinds of answers to that question. And I also want to be careful not to, you know, make grandiose claims about the power of philosophy to change the world or anything. (laughs) But, But I think that when children are listened to carefully in the way that adults listen to other adults, it is a very powerful experience for children. And because philosophical questions are not the kinds of questions to which any of us have final settled answers. So that unlike many areas in which there is adult and child interaction, the adults are not the experts. We aren't the people, you know, teaching them what, you know, free will is or what it means to be a good person. We're still thinking about these questions. Maybe for some of us, our thinking is farther along, maybe not, but we're all still trying to understand the world that we live in, in deeper, better ways. And so I think for children to be a part of that conversation in a more equal way, to know that the way they think and their perspectives on the world are valuable is really powerful. And again, I think philosophy is particularly suited to that because the questions we deal with are provisional. They they don't they have only provisional answers. We don't have final answers or full answers for philosophical questions by definition. Well, it's it, I think I'm reminded of a quote by John Stuart Mill. It may have been John Stuart Mill. I'm not sure who is where he says something like the uninformed are very certain and the intelligent are full of doubt. Do you, what, what talk quote am I talking about? You know the one yes. I'm talking about? It might have been Russell, actually. I've stuffed it up. It's a really powerful quote. Basically says, well, there's too many people who are too certain. In psychology, there's a word for it too, which is also escaping. I'm showing all of my 57 years here, but we have a world where which where certainty about answers to complex questions is rewarded. It's incentivized, if you want to use that term, and that's just not the way the world is. And one of the things that's hard to get used to when you start studying philosophy is not. I didn't really start studying it seriously until I was in my 40s. And uh, studying it seriously as an adult, you have to get used to the fact that although the questions have been around for a long time, they're not settled. And that's a level of, uh, just unlike other disciplines, because it's not true that science is settled, but the way we teach it, science is settled, history is settled. Well, right. I mean, this is the issue. I mean, that is that, you know, school in particular, elementary school and high school, middle school tend to be answer centered, right? They tend to be about 
students learning the right answer and not really question-centered, despite the fact that all of these subjects begin and end with questions, right? I mean, no subject, mathematics, science, history, literature, doesn't continue to have big questions. So it, it is really interesting when you think about it that school tends to be so focused on gaining certain pieces of knowledge, information, and less on kind of how to think and how to ask good questions and how to think through questions when, in fact, most of life involves questions, whether they're big questions or not. Much of life involves working through problems and questions, not just living in a world of certainty, because we don't live in that world. It's a lesson I had to learn early myself, because one of the questions that really plagued me when I was in my 30s was, what am I going to do with my life? And the way I approached the question is that the answer would appear, you know, be a beautiful bullet point or one bullet point thing about my purpose in life, if you will. And it, it actually caused me a certain amount of existential pain, not having the answer. And of course, now that I've actually written a book about careers, but now that I have written a book about careers, one of the things that you have to learn about careers is that there isn't an answer that what you what you do when you run a career is you have a, an evolving and a, a something that's a moving target, something that's always changing, and it, it's not definitive answer. Certainly, your careers look like that. Exactly. Well, I have this really like this powerful memory of being about nineteen years old and in college, and coming upon this realization that both that I had. I mean, I think I hadn't been fully aware that I thought, part of me thought that at some point there would be like a schema that would provide me with all the answers and that all the adults already had them. <laughs> and I remember realizing no one has all the answers. I mean, I just remember how powerful that was for me. So, yeah. Indeed, indeed. So let's ask, if I may, how does it work to introduce this to children? Like a practically, like what are you doing with your, mm -hmm. well, your your day job's complex thing, but what are you doing with schools and with school systems? To so typically, we, we come into a classroom and we bring up some kind of a prompt. So it might be a picture book, it might be an activity, it might be a game, it might just be a question, and we ask it and sort of. So let's say it's a story. So we read the story and then we ask the students. So what questions does this make you wonder about? And then there are various ways that we get at the questions in small groups or put them on the board or whatever, and we get the students choose then which question they would like as a group to tackle. And then we facilitate a conversation about the question, helping so that we are really not trying to direct the content of what is being discussed, but we are focused more on, okay, pushing the students to think more deeply, to give good reasons, to see when they're positing views that are contradictory, to take into account other perspectives, et cetera, to examine assumptions. So we're helping them to think more clearly about these subjects and also wanting to ensure that lots of perspectives on how to see the particular question get out on the table. So trying to engage as many students in articulating their own views about whatever it is as possible. And I think that that's really what's most important in being able to facilitate these kinds of conversations. What I always say to parents and grandparents is a lot of this involves really listening to what 
the child or children in your life are saying. So not so much thinking, okay, we're going to have a philosophical conversation today about free will. What do you think about free will? (laughs) Um, Which your four-year-old is going to look at you like, I don't know what you're talking about. But rather to when you're reading a story and your child says something like, why do people die? Not being a scared stiff of entering into that conversation with them, or b thinking, oh, they don't, you know, they they don't really understand this, but just asking the questions. Well, why do you think? Why do you think people die? What do you think about that? And just just entering into the conversation because, of course, that's a question that I think none of us have a final answer to, and it's a question I find that children are often really interested in talking about. And you know, it's funny about that. The way you're describing that interaction, it's the adults who will be co-partner. And the, the adults will be learning a great deal as, as well, which is so, oh, so, it's so fascinating to me to listen because even though we start with this will be helpful and empowering to children, actually being engaged in this dialogue with anyone and having to find answers yourself or have to sit with the questions yourself would be tremendous for adults who spent too little time reflecting and too little time thinking about the big questions. So Yeah, one of the most fun parts of my job, aside from working with kids, is working with teachers and other educators at the university and outside of the university who are interested in exploring these questions together. It's wonderful. So, Jana, let's have an example for listeners who might be curious about how this works on the ground and not abstractly. What's an, another example of how this looks in the classroom? Well, I'll give you, I'll tell you a story that happened very recently, just in the last couple of weeks in a classroom. We were exploring the question that one of the children asked, which was, why don't we call humans animals when we are animals? And the student who asked the question explained that what she was sort of puzzling about was that we see ourselves so separate from animals and we were, there's human beings and there's animals, she said, but really human beings is, we're just a species of animal. We're all animals. And if we called everyone animals, you know, so there's humans, there's giraffes, there's elephants, etc. but we're all in the animal family. Would that cause us to treat animals differently. And one child said something like, well, if we use different names for things, it changes how we see those things. And we, I said, well, what do, you, what do you mean by that? Well, if you call humans animals and then you call, you know, lions animals, then it might lead you to start to see lions and humans as connected in ways you wouldn't see them as connected because you call them different things and make them seem like they're so different from each other. But if you call them the same thing, you might change how we relate to animals. And it was just really, I thought, really a wonderful sort of analysis of the way in which naming has an effect on both perception and also ethics, right? The way in which we treat other things or beings, et cetera. So that's an example. That, that's great. And uh, of course, there's a very famous 
very controversial guy called Peter Singer who yeah. introduces that. I don't think he introduces it through the vehicle of what we call things, but he makes yeah. a great deal of the distinction between animals, human animals and other animals as being an artificial one. And we make them morally distinct because effectively the way we relate to animals is we could do what we like with them. We can hunt them. We can kill them. Uh, we can certainly eat. Most certainly most people agree with eating them. And he takes issue with all of that because he thinks the divide between the animal kingdom and the human animal kingdom is one that's more manufactured than a, which shouldn't have moral significance. Let's put it that way. So that's right. a very interesting philosopher. Well, that's excellent. Let me ask you this. You spend a lot of time, I assume, talking to educators, to people yes. who are school boards or people who are people of philosophy education or specialists. Yes, and I spend a lot of time with teachers too. Yes. Right. So what are the two or three things? Let's assume it's a good idea. I think listeners will be sold on that. What are the impediments? What are the biggest things that are in the way of this finding its way into our curricula? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I would say the main impediment is because philosophy is so foreign to most people as they think it's so foreign to most people in this country because we don't have philosophy as a required high school subject, unlike most places in the world where philosophy is a required subject. So for example, philosophy is really starting to make its way into elementary school classrooms in places like France and Italy and the UK because philosophy is part of the high school curriculum already. And so it's not unfamiliar to teachers. Mm. Whereas in this country, philosophy is is really unfamiliar and often seen as, as kind of, as you said at the beginning, sort of esoteric and abstract, etc. So I think the main impediment is really giving teachers the tools to be able to facilitate these kinds of conversations in their classrooms. And we do workshops for teachers and, and ongoing support for teachers who are doing this in their classrooms. But I would say that is the most significant challenge because the way we do this in the Seattle area, for example, is we send trained people, philosophers, educators into schools, sort of a philosopher in the school program, like the writers in the schools program or the artists in residence programs, very similar kind of model to mm -hmm. come in and, and facilitate philosophy sessions each week. And that's a lovely model because the teachers welcome us coming in. The teachers then can observe and participate, but they don't feel like there's a whole nother subject they're supposed to be learning sure. how to do, which right now for teachers feels pretty overwhelming since they're being asked to do something new about every 10 minutes. And so having us come in and support this and without really them having to do anything but be present. And if they want to participate, they can. And some teachers then want to take our workshops and want to start doing this on their own, et cetera, but some do not. So, and I think to have this be that kind of program, to have it not have to be done by classroom teachers, but to be done by people who are trained in philosophy or how to facilitate philosophical conversations with children. Well, there's just, that's, there are not that many people, right, who are doing that. So it's like the artists in residence programs and the writers in the schools programs, those kinds of programs tend to be, they send people in for a very short period. So an artist comes in for, you know, four weeks and does a project-based thing with a group of kids. But, but our program is really every week, all year long. And I really think that is meaningful to the kids because the 
philosophical community grows. And so really in order to have that take hold, what would be ideal would be to have the classroom teachers invested in this and be able to do this themselves. But given the current state of our educational system, and also given the way the United States education structure is school structure, every district is different, every state's different, right? So it's really complicated to try and think about how you would do this large scale. But I would say on the smaller scale, We have really been encouraging to parents who are interested in this to come to our workshops, to learn how to do this, and then to be able to go into their children's classrooms and facilitate conversations with their children's classrooms or with other classrooms in their children's schools. And that can be a really nice model. What we often will do, I mean, we don't do it so much anymore because at this point we have more demand than we even are able to meet. But what we used to do when we were doing a lot of outreach to the schools would be to say, we'll come in and do a demonstration class. We'll just do one class and a philosophy session and you can watch and see what you think. And and usually, I mean, children really do take to it. And so the teachers then would really want to have it continue. That's wild. I mean, getting anything done nationally is, of course, out of the question. In Seattle, have you been able to make, if you want, district-wide progress? You know, we ha- we ha- actually, that hasn't even really been one of our goals uh-huh, so much. Uh-huh. Our, our approach tends to be sort of bottom up rather than top down. Yep. So we don't spend a lot of time talking to administrators about, you know, getting this into their schools. We actually start usually with a school with a teacher, a couple of teachers who either have come to our workshop or hear about us for whatever reason. And then we go into that classroom and then word spreads and other teachers want it. So there are several schools where we are in a multitude of classrooms and and we made the decision a few, well, maybe five or 10 years ago to focus on really developing deep presence in a smaller number of schools rather than a more superficial presence in a larger number of schools. I got it. Yeah. And so that's what we're doing. And one of the models that I really um, see as promising is this philosopher in residence model. So we do have a philosopher in residence. We've had her now through grant funding for this is her fifth year in a school in South Seattle. And she's able to be in lots of classrooms to communicate with the teachers, with the parents, etc. And I think that that model, if we were able to, yeah. to set that up in more schools, that would be powerful. Like the school nurse, but for thinking. Um, exactly. That's, I like that. Exactly. Yes. Uh, that's great. And listen, you know, uh, let's imagine that we have a listener who's inspired by this and wants to get involved. I mean, so uh-huh. it, could be, so it could be me, right? Say, I think, well, uh, well, first of all, a couple of questions. But do they have to have a core training of philosophy, like a couple of undergrad classes or a master's? If not, hopefully not, because there are too few of us around, then what could they do to make themselves an avatar or a... Really good question. And the answer to your first question is no, they do not. They certainly don't need a PhD or a master's in order to be able to facilitate these conversations. What they need is, and I've written some about this, is what I call philosophical sensitivity. That is kind of a a sensitivity to the philosophical dimension of what children ask and say. Uh, So an ear for it. And I think the way to develop that is largely, you can do some of it through reading. There's a lot online now. We run a workshop that's free. We welcome people to come every 
June. There are other workshops like ours around the country. The best places to look are on our website, on the Plato website. People are free to write to me. I get emails like this all the time and I'm able usually from wherever someone is to find someone close to them with whom they might be able to connect. So there's lots of resources out there right now. There's lots of information on our website as well as the Plato website about lesson plans and books you can use and ways to go about it, et cetera. So that's probably where I would start. Okay. Just for listeners, Plato is the philosophy, learning, and teaching organization. Yes. And it's the kind of national umbrella organization that a group of us founded eight years ago that brings together those of us around the country who are engaged in doing this work. We have a conference every other year. And um, we also put on a, a seminar every other year for high school teachers. And there are various other programs that listeners can learn about on the website. Super, super. Well, look, you've been so generous and I've found myself really, really inspired myself to maybe come do one of your workshops in June or or to take Great. something online. It would be really fun. I, in fact, you know, I have enough time in my hands as a writer to really almost be that guy who offers themselves to middle schools and high schools uh, to do this. So anyway, there's a very practical side of this conversation as well as an inspirational side as I, I might find something more useful to do with my time. Than <laughs> <laughs> well, we would welcome you to come to see Seattle uh, this June. So we'll be in touch about that. I will put, in fact, the dates of your workshop on my website, as well as resources to your book, to Sophie's World, to the Thomas Nadal book, What Does It All Mean?, to the Frog and Toad books, to the Velveteen Rabbit books, and to Plato, and to, of course, the Center for Philosophy for Children. So I'll give listeners... And I will say that there's a page on our website that has over 100 books like the Frog and Toad books and sort of questions that they might raise, et cetera. That's really, really a nice resource for parents in particular. And a link to that also, of course. Yes. All right. Thank you. Thanks. Oh, you're very welcome. Really nice to talk to you. All right. Nice to talk to you also. Hi, this is the part of the show where I get to talk about fascinating and interesting books. So one book that we're going to talk about is The Philosophical Child, and I've got a link to that in the show notes. That's Jana's book on how adults and teachers can help encourage philosophical thinking in children, and I really recommend it to you. Another book we mentioned in the show is Sophie's World by Danish author Justine Gardner. It's a beautiful book. It's told as a mystery story, as a young girl discovers a series of letters from a stranger, which ask her to consider the big questions in life. And then her correspondent introduces her gently to the history of Western philosophy, but told through the eyes of a, we imagine, an 11 or 12-year-old girl. A further book mentioned in the show is Thomas Nagel's book. He's a very famous philosopher and has done some very important work on the theory of knowledge. But his book for lay people, if you will, an introduction to philosophy is called What Does It All Mean? Again, in the show notes uh, on my website, there's a link to that book. Finally, you'll find a link to Plato. Plato advocates and supports introducing philosophy to children and youth through programs, resource sharing, and development of a national network in pre-college philosophy. And the link to Plato, Jana's organization, is also on my website. To celebrate the launch of the show, and thank you all for listening, I'm going to be giving away books, lots and lots of books. All you have to do is leave a review in iTunes. 
We're going to raffle off a book every single week for 12 weeks. So head on over to paulgibbons.net slash iTunes to get easy to follow directions and let me know the title of your review to make sure that you're entered to win. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Think Bigger, Think Better. Great ideas are great, but this isn't gospel. Share your critical thinking in the comments. Where do I disagree? What insights were most powerful? If you got value, don't forget to share the value by sharing the podcast. Finally, to get information on book and blog releases and new video content, head over to paulgibbons.net and join the community of thinkers talking about using science and philosophy to make our world a better place.